Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The Bible says in Philippians that he laid his glory aside and he became lower than the angels. You will see him in his glory. I don't know what that is. No one can explain it. It's an unapproachable light, but you will see Jesus as he is. And I think in that day, we'll go, I should have lived for him more. When we picture Jesus, we probably picture him the way human eyes last saw him when he walked this earth, right? As a humble, gentle servant from Galilee, or maybe as a dying, suffering Savior on the cross. But when we see Jesus in the days to come, we will see him as the almighty King of heaven in all his glory. May that be the Jesus we are truly living for and serving today. With more from 1 Timothy 6, verses 11 through 21, here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Jesus knocks and we open. We're the ones who are receiving eternal life, but he's the one that initiated it. See, we don't see it that way. We come to church, we respond and we raise our hand and we think I invited God in, but Jesus said, no, I called you. I chose you. You did not choose me. I chose you, Jesus said to his disciples. It's God that initiates that salvation, but you still have to lay hold of it. You have to believe. If you don't, you won't receive it. So lay hold of that to which you are called and then, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, the way this is worded, in the Greek, it flows a little smoother, but the way that it's worded here is a little difficult and have confessed the good confession in the presence of witnesses. We are to live our lives in such a way that our lives become a confession of our faith, the good confession, that people see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Then he gives us the example of Jesus who confessed in front of Pilate. Look at verse 13. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession, there's the term again, before Pontius Pilate. Just as you have been called to give the good confession to those around you, Jesus gave the good confession before Pilate. Now, what did Jesus confess before him? I find three things. Number one, in Matthew 27, 11, Jesus admitted the truth about himself, agreeing with Pilate's statement that Jesus was the king of the Jews. You remember that Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, it is as you say. Part of the good confession is letting people know who Jesus is. Jesus that we preach is the Messiah. He is the one promised long ago in ancient writings that he would come and rescue us from our sins. And he fulfilled those just as the Bible said that he would. He is the Messiah. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. That's part of the good confession. Number two, in John 19, 11, Jesus testified to Pilate about the sovereignty of God, saying you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you by my Father above. You remember that he said to Pilate, you're not in control here, I am. He said, you wouldn't have any authority unless my dad had given it to you. Now, when you look at the circumstances, Pilate's about to hand him over to be beaten and crucified, and Jesus is telling him, I'm in control. But in reality, he was. Pilate had free will. He could make some decisions, he could make some choices. 
But Pilate was about to run into the sovereignty of God. And God gives men free will. He allows you to make decisions, but make no mistake about it. One day you will run into the sovereignty of God. One day you will stand before him because it's God who is in control and it's God that has given you everything. Tell me, what do you have that was not given to you by God? By the way, that's a scripture before you want to argue with it. It says everything we have has been given to us. So why boast? Why be prideful? You say, well, I'm a good looking guy. Well, how did you choose that? You could have been born ugly. He didn't choose it. You know, I guess rejoice in it, but you didn't choose it. You say, well, I made a lot of money in my lifetime and I worked hard for it. Nobody gave that to me. Yeah, God gave you the ability to make money. Trust me, there's some people that don't have that ability. And God gave you that ability. God has given you the breath in your lungs, the energy to do it. There's nothing that you have that hasn't been given to you by God. And therefore, you will answer to God one day. Remember Pilate's wife? She said, I have had a dream concerning this man this morning and don't do it. Don't judge against him. Pilate did. And Pilate had to answer before him. Part of our good confession is telling people who Jesus is. And part of our good confession is letting people know that God is sovereign and everyone will answer to him one day. He may give you room to move now. You may be moving in a bubble of free will, but you can't escape God's sovereignty. The third thing that Jesus did in front of Pilate in Matthew 27, 14, is he remained silent. It's interesting. Jesus was silent about specific accusations, refusing to defend himself, but leaving his life in the will of God the Father. A lot of people attack us as Christians. Some of you guys are getting ready to start college. If you're starting the U of A, you should know that the 101 classes have an agenda to destroy your faith. You'll be in classes that have nothing to do with, with philosophy or theology. They're math classes, and your teacher will start attacking Christians. You'll want to defend yourself. Understand that God will defend you. Understand that you can't really defend yourself anyway. You are living for God and you will live for him no matter what. And it is that which people will see. He didn't defend himself. This is the good confession that we live in front of people. So the three things he was to do, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of eternal life and live the good confession in front of witnesses. And then he says in verse 14 that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until Jesus Christ's appearing. In other words, we're not in this thing for the short haul. We're in it until Jesus comes back. Now, some of us in this room are going to go and be with the Lord. You're in it until you go to be with him. But everyone is in it and there will be people living the good confession until Jesus appears. One day, the angel said when Jesus ascended up into heaven and the guys just stood there and stared at up where he had went which is probably what we would do as well. If we're talking to Jesus and he ascends up into heaven, he goes up in the clouds, we're all just standing there looking up. Who would be the first one to look away, right? You're looking. Finally, an angel appeared and said, men of Israel, why are you standing here staring up, looking into heaven? The same Jesus who left this way will return again the same way. He will return in the clouds. And 1 Thessalonians 5 says, he's coming back for us. And those who are alive and remain will meet him in the air and we will forever be with the Lord. And we live these things now and we live that good confession until the time that he appears. You say, well, when is that? Well, no one knows. That's said in the next verse. It says in verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time. 
That's another verse that tells us no one knows when Jesus is coming back. Somebody needs to tell Harold Camping this verse. Maybe he needs to discover this verse and, or anybody else who would set dates for the return of Jesus. It's manifest in his own time, all right? He who is blessed in the only potentate. Now, what, what Paul does here is as he thinks about this good confession and that we're going to be living it until he appears, he now breaks into praise for Jesus. He now thinks about why we have this good confession. What is the reason you have it? Do you have the good confession because you want to live for God from what you can get out of it? Hey, listen, the best life to live if you're in it for yourself is not a Christian walk. If you're in it for yourself, then choose some other way. We lay down our lives and we give it to him. We are not serving him for the sake of the church. The church is here for him. It's for Jesus. And one day we will look upon his face. One day we will see him in all of his glory. We will see the only potentate, the only royalty. We will see the King of kings and Lord of lords who dwells in an unapproachable light. What a day that will be when we stand in front of him. And so Paul now, as he thinks about us living this good confession for the rest of our time here on earth, he now focuses on Jesus because that's the reason we do this. So he says, blameless until the Lord's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed, the only potentate, again, that's king or ruler, the only one, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal, dwelling in an unapproachable light, who no man can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. When Jesus comes back for you, or you die and go into his presence, don't think that you're going to see Jesus approaching you in some garb from Galilee in 2,000 years ago. Long hair and a beard. The Bible says in Philippians that he laid his glory aside and he became lower than the angels. You will see him in his glory. I don't know what that is. No one can explain it. It's an unapproachable light, but you will see Jesus as he is. And I think in that day, we'll go, I should have lived for him more. I should have done more. Look at him. He is the one who has called us. He's the one who's chosen us. He's the one who loved us. What an amazing thing that this Jesus who lives in an unapproachable light wants to know you. I, I'm, I'm blown away. At 14 years old, he called me that he would want to know me, this 14-year-old kid, that he wants to know you, that you want to know him. That doesn't amaze me. That the frog wanted the princess to kiss him. No problem. It's that the princess would kiss the frog. That's the problem. <laughs> that God would want to know us. Well, that's amazing. But he does. God, the creator of the universe, wants to know you, walk with you and live with you. And so Paul rejoices over that and just even begins to praise as he sees this. And uh, he says to him, be honor and everlasting power. Amen. The end of verse 16. Then he goes back into his topic, which is money. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in the uncertainty of riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves good foundations for the time to come that they may lay hold of eternal life. Now, earlier I made a joke about maybe there's a rich person here, but I think if we look at, at our economy and where we are among our economy compared to the rest of the world, we really are rich. 
the, the rest of the world, the majority of the rest of the world lives in poverty compared to how we live. And I think these words are for us. And so then he, he finishes it and he does it kind of quickly. I just want you to get a sense of how fast Paul ends this letter. You say, well, maybe you should end your teaching that fast. Well, maybe I should. But let me read it first and then we'll end it, all right? O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge and professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you, amen. And I, I see Timothy, when he reads it, Paul's been going off. And he's, he has had no shortage of words. He's had parentheses and he's gone off on rabbit trails and he's returned to his topic. And then all of a sudden he's done and I see Timothy looking for another page to the letter. Is that it? Is Paul done? But I think that Paul ends it with an emphasis of what they have been entrusted with because that's the importance of the church. Remember this letter, chapter three tells us is he's writing it to them about how we conduct ourselves in the church. And so verse 20 again, O Timothy, guard that which was committed to your trust. We don't get to choose what we do as a church. I, I don't get to go, you know, as a pastor, I want to figure out what we as a church should be doing. There are those in church growth books and seminars that will tell churches that they need to get a flavor to them, that they need to have certain things that they do that's different than other churches, which will give them their own niche in the community. All right. But here's the thing. We have been entrusted. I, I don't get to choose I have been entrusted with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been entrusted with the word of God. And that is so much better than anything else. What if I come to you and say, you know, I've been pastoring now for 27 years and I have some things that I've learned that I want to share with you. Well, I might have 27 years behind it, but how, how much time does God have behind what he shares with us? And so I give you my dead words that have no power and no life behind it. Why have I wasted your time when I could have given you what's been entrusted, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the word of God. And there is a move today for churches to move away from the teaching of the word of God. Men go into the pulpits without Bibles. They never open them up. They never read them. They never quote them. Or if they do quote them, they're just very light quotes as they are giving you man's philosophies, the new ideas, the way we're supposed to live, modern or postmodern philosophies. Well, Paul says here, in verse 20 again, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. We need to understand that when Paul wrote this, Greek philosophy was at its peak. They had thought they had arrived and that they had gained it. Kind of like today, where scientific philosophy is at its peak. It's amazing to me how arrogant man can be in saying, we've got it figured out. We know exactly how this universe came to be. D do you know that we know less, and when I say we, it's all of mankind. Every brain on the earth combined. We know less than 1% of all that can be known out there. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. Out of all that can be known, we know that gravity is true. We know that gravity happens. You know, Newton's aha moment when the apple hit him on the head, right? Your aha moment when the hammer hit your toe. <laughs> Gravity, ouch. But we don't know how it works. Did you know that? 
We don't know how does it bend space? Why does smaller matter attract it to a larger matter? What is it that attracts it to it? What is it that's happening? We don't know. We don't know what a black hole is. We don't know what dark energy is. We don't know how the quantum world works. Doctors don't know what's wrong with you. <laughs> and they've had all kinds of schooling, right? And they've had time to study the human body. And the doctor, you go to the doctor, and I go, I don't know. Let's try this. I'm not I'm a guinea pig. Let's try that. Let's try this. They talk with such, especially scientists, will talk with such emphatic, this is what we know, and this is what we know now, and, and we know this and we know that. When they don't really know much. And do you know that there's a rule out there? If you're writing your PhD, when you're doing that, you have to cite all kinds of studies. You should look up the studies and, and those things. Uh, do you know that you don't want to use a study that's over 10 years old because it's considered to be inaccurate when you're writing a thesis for that? Well, that's interesting to me because if you say, well, anything over 10 years old is inaccurate, then in 10 years, the studies you're citing now are going to be considered to be inaccurate. You're admitting that so much has to be learned that what you're going to cite in 10 years about today is inaccurate. So that really is falsely called knowledge. Listen, I have no problem with learning, obviously. I, I, I love to learn about the universe. I love to learn about black holes and quantum uh, physics and just the different things that I love it. I love learning of those things. When we get into science and evolution and we start talking about those things, I go off on my own rabbit trails in those areas. But understanding that all of that is going to change, that what people say they know today in five years, they won't know because we're growing so fast in technology. But God's word never changes. Scientists say you can't cite a study from 10 years ago and we're citing something that was written, some of it, 3,500 years ago. And it's still true to this day. Guard that which you have been entrusted with. Don't fall away on that which is falsely called knowledge. And look at the last verse. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. When you get caught up in what is falsely called knowledge, the theology, the philosophy of your day or your community or your society, some have strayed from the faith in doing so. Then he says, grace be with you, amen. And I love it that he lands it. Some pastors have trouble ending messages. Have you noticed that? Don't say amen about me, by the way. <laughs> there have been times when I've had trouble landing a message. You get a message off, you get it up in the air. I was at a uh, pastor's conference last month or the beginning of this month, and I listened to 11, about 10, 11 messages. And uh, a couple of the guys had trouble landing their message. Now, here's the thing. We're at a senior pastor's conference and there's a thousand senior pastors, thousand Calvary Chapel senior pastors from all around the nation that are there. And here's this guy that gets his plane up in the air and he can't land it. And we all know it. We're all going, land it, land a thing. And he goes, and also he brings it around for another circle. And when he does, all of us in the room, you could see it. Because he's gone 55, 60 minutes and you're like, land this plane. I want to say, shut up, stop talking, just end. Some of you guys say, well, land it now. You're at the end of your passage. I love the end. Grace and be with you. Amen. Grace. I don't think that he said that lightly. I don't think he said, I need to wrap it up. I need to say something spiritual. So grace be with you all. Amen. Grace. God's undeserved favor. Boy, we all need to live in that. To be able to do as the church what God's called us to do and what we've been gone over for the last few weeks in the book of First Timothy, we need God's grace. Unmerited favor. Not because of what you've done, but because of who he is and because of what he's done.
Stand with me, would you? And let's pray and land this plane. <laughs> Father, we are blessed by your word. We're so thankful for all that you have shared with us out of this book of 1 Timothy. And Lord, we realize that your word is so rich that we could spend our lives trying to be experts on your word and never discover all that is in it. Forgive us when we turn to the world, the sciences or the philosophies of the world and think that somehow they know more than your word reveals. We give ourselves to you and we want to guard that which has been entrusted to us. We want to fight the good fight of faith. We want to lay hold of eternity by which we have been called. And we want to witness the good confession in front of many witnesses. Give us your spirit that we can do that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. I'd like you to keep your heads bowed, please, and your eyes closed for just a moment. I'd also like to ask that no one would leave early. We're almost done. We'll dismiss you here momentarily. You can race everybody else to the restaurants. But I want to give you an opportunity if you're here, you've never given your life to Christ. The Bible says, Jesus himself said, if you seek to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life for his sake, you'll save it. We're told in Revelation 12 that we overcome Satan by the power of the blood and the word of our testimony. The power of the blood, because it is the blood of Jesus that forgives you of your sins. And listen to me, for those of you that Satan has a hold on right now, what better way to break his hold than to forgive you of your sins? Once your sins are forgiven you, what hold does Satan have on you anymore? Once your guilt and shame and sin has been removed, Satan can't accuse you anymore and he has no hold over you. That's what Jesus wants to do for you today. He went to the cross, he shed his blood so your sins could be forgiven. But not only to that end, that's not the end. I said it during the message, God wants to know you. It starts by asking him to forgive your sins. It starts by you believing and it ends with you walking with him, learning that this life is not about you living for yourself, your power, your pleasure or money or whatever, but it's about living for him. And if you wanna know him, you wanna begin to walk with him now, then I'm gonna ask you to do something simple. Just raise your hand. Wherever you are in the room, lift your hand up now. Lift it up high so I can see it. First of all, in the back of the room to my left, God bless you. Ma'am, that's great. Back here, three hands that are raised. God bless you guys. That's awesome. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today may be your day of glory, the sovereignty of God, that God has set aside since before the foundations of the world that you would call out upon his name. God bless you guys. Back over to the right up front. That's awesome. God bless you right there by the aisle. That's great. And back by the, kind of by the sound booth. God bless you. That's awesome. Yep. That's great. If you want to give your life to Christ, do it today. God bless you, sir, here in the front. That's great. All right. And God bless you. That's awesome. God bless you there, young man. That's great. All right, you can put your hands down. And I'd like everyone, including those who raised their hands, to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, I confess that I have sinned. And I know my sin has separated me from you. I also understand that I can be forgiven by the death of Jesus upon the cross. So I invite you into my life. And I turn from my sin 
that I can live for you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Welcome to the family of God. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.